Welcome to Positive Talk Radio. Our goal is simple, to explore evolving ideas one conversation at a time. So stay with us as right now we present. I tell you what, we got a treat for you today. And uh, I'm really excited about talking to our guest today. She is, well, she's one of those people that has, how you say, lived a lot of life. And she's had a lot of life happen to her. And, uh, but she's sitting here today. Uh, we got to congratulate her and her husband, who's, um, what caught up in some of the stuff and now he's employed again and he's and life is life is good and it's december so it's got to be uh near christmas and so that's a great thing to have happen amanda blackwood is our guest and she has written a cool i don't know can you say 13 novels or should we just skip to 14 amanda <laughs> Uh, I'm just going to say 13 for right now. I have no plans on trying to crank one out the last three weeks of the year. It's just not in me. <laughs> well, there's a lot in you because 13 books is a lot. That is a lot. It is a lot. And all of that since 2018. You're a what they call a prolific writer. I am. And I always have been. I just didn't have ambitions of being able to write or publish anything until I had lived through some of the worst stuff imaginable. And my goal was to write a book before I died. You made it. I did. And then I discovered that this was my new addiction Thank to you. see my name in print. Well, you know, what's even a bigger addiction than that is the fact that you're helping people. Um, yeah, absolutely. It started out with wanting to see my name in print, and it just continues now because I'm making an impact. You truly are. You truly are. And one of the things that you're making an impact about is um, human trafficking and uh, that you've been through that a number of times up to and including. By the way, I just wanted to mention this because I know this is part of your story. If you... um have a porn addiction or you like to listen or watch porn i want you to know that a lot of the of the people that populate those videos and amanda will attest to this are being trafficked and they're doing things against their will and i would highly suggest the only way to get that stuff gone is if nobody watches it anymore so i would suggest just kindly that you stop watching that kind of stuff because it is done in a the seediest way possible. Is that, am I close to being correct in that, Amanda? Absolutely. More than 85% of all modern pornography is created using victims of human trafficking like me. That's a horrible statistic. Yeah. It's a big number. That is a big, how does that, you know, in a free society like we have, how does that happen? We have the illusion of freedom. As long as one person has the ability to coerce, fraud, or force somebody into doing something that they don't want to do or shouldn't have to do, we do not have full freedom. And doesn't that, in some ways, that starts actually when we are just children and the, the way our kids are raised and the way that they're ignored sometimes that they grow up and they don't, they feel less than, they feel worthless. And so when somebody shine, takes a shine to them, 
they tend to uh, um, fall for the um, the story. And that's also correct, isn't it? Absolutely. That's the story of my basic life. Um, I learned very early on that I didn't have a voice. And if I spoke up, nobody was going to listen to me. And if I did try, somebody was going to call me a liar. I didn't have the ability to stand up for myself. I was the youngest of the family. Nobody was going to listen. I was that too. Um, and I had to, I, not to the degree that you did, but um, I had, my parents were, by the time they get, sometimes by the time they get to the youngest child, they're done. They're tired. They're, they're, they've had it. <laughs> and my parents were very, very young parents. So I only have one sibling. He's three and a half years older than me. Um, it's been a long time since I've seen him. So sometimes I have to think really hard to remember how much older he is. But my parents met when my mom was 15 and my dad was 20. Oh my. And when they got married, my mom was only 17. And by the time she turned 18, they had my brother. And I came along three years after that. So even so she had just turned 21 and you were born. Right. I I don't know about you, but I I have met a lot of twenty one year olds. I was one. We don't know crap about anything, <laughs> right? Oh my gosh! No, and we think we know it all, and oh, we think yeah. we are ready to take on the world, and we're ready to lead our own lives, and we're these strong and independent adults. And then you end up strapped with a kid, and you don't know what to do with it. Yep. And that, that happened to my parents. And, and by the time I came along, uh, um, the oldest one was given all this responsibility that is not, it's not fair for a 10 year old to have the middle one was ignored. And I was ignored except for when I play baseball, Ugh, yeah. you know? And so it's just one of those things. And that, but as we grow up, unless we find positive people who can mentor us and can, and can help us recognize our worth, we tend to fall into these traps and especially a, um, especially a pretty woman like you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm feeling my age these days, but you know, the red hair still does it. <laughs> well, and, and I have no earthly conception of what it's like to be a woman in this society because uh, you are in many cases treated less than um, you don't make as much money. Uh, you don't have the same opportunities and then you can be um, abused and taken advantage of and stuff like that because we, that's kind of how we all grow up and it's it really is sad so I to make that long story back I'm glad you've written the books so that you can help people recognize that they have worth and uh, that they there are ways that they can get out of of doing these things but uh, as far as being human trafficked. And, and I, I just wanted to touch on it because there is this thing going around about what human trafficking is, and I really don't think that they have it correct as far as what human trafficking is. You've been through it and from your perspective. What is human trafficking? I always tell people to make sure that if they're going to look up what human trafficking is, don't look it up on Google. Don't look it up on Wikipedia. These are fallible resources that can be manipulated by anybody, anywhere. You want to go somewhere that's going to be a dependable resource. And I tell people all the time that my personal choice, I go to the Department of Homeland Security. On their website, human trafficking is defined as the use of force, fraud, or coercion 
to obtain commercial sex acts or labor from another person. So if you notice, there's several key things missing that we think of as human trafficking. Number one, there's no mention of transportation. Even though we think of trafficking as being in traffic, being on the roads, human smuggling and human trafficking are two completely separate issues that both need to be addressed, and they do overlap a lot, but not always. One is not the other. And I've had a lot of people come at me and get very angry with me for pointing that out because they are filled with rage that I could possibly say that they're not the same thing. There's also no mention of money. So when we're talking about commercial sex acts, that does not always mean prostitution. It could be somebody that's forced into human trafficking. It could be somebody who is being held against their will and repeatedly raped for the amusement of somebody else. It doesn't have to be money. It doesn't have to be bartering with drugs. It doesn't have to be uh, somebody walking the streets and turning tricks so that she can give the money to the pimp every night. But there's a lot of overlap there too. Another key thing missing from that definition is age. We think of human trafficking here in this country for whatever reason as something that only happens to kids. People under the age of 18 make up one quarter of all victims, which means most victims, even here in the U.S., are over the age of 18. And it mentions commercial sex acts and labor. What a lot of people don't realize is that even though we only tend to talk about sex trafficking here in the U.S., that only makes up 14% of trafficking. Most is labor trafficking. Yeah. And there's... Uh, go ahead. There's one more part that I, I love to point out to people that they're missing. It doesn't mention who the traffickers are. So we think of these kidnapping scenarios or somebody following you through the grocery store parking lot or um, snatching your kid off the side of the road when they're on the way home from school. That makes up 1% to 2% of all human trafficking cases. Most people that are trafficked are trafficked by people they already know and trust and love. And that's because it's a whole lot easier to manipulate somebody that you already trust. That And it can be happening in your own neighborhood. Absolutely. It more than likely is. There is not one neighborhood, one city, one town in this country that is not affected in some way by human trafficking. You know, and the one thing that the the um, Homeland Security website doesn't talk about is pedophilia. Now, that's probably a whole different thing. Um, it's, it's It has probably a little overlap, but I don't think it is what people think trafficking is. Is it, am, I, am I correct in that? Right. Um, when you're talking about child pornography, that is a form of trafficking. But pedophilia is not always human trafficking. It's kind of like the same thing with prostitution. There's going to be a massive amount of overlap, but that's not always the exact same thing. It's like 95% of all prostitutes in the U.S. are victims of trafficking, but there's still that 5% that aren't. Did you say 95%? Yes. That's huge. That's, that's, now, I suppose, and I don't know this for a fact, <laughs> I'm here to tell you, Amanda, I don't know very many prostitutes. I've never, I've never sought them out. I've never thought about it and, and stuff. Um, so I don't know if anybody, if 
there is a, a percentage of people that do it because all oh, the money's great, the freedom, they like to do what they're doing. Um, how many, how many 10 year olds have you ever met that have said that they want to grow up and have sex for a living? None. This is not an ambition. Somebody wants for their life. If they end up even by choice becoming a prostitute, it is because they feel they have no other options, or it is because they have been groomed to think this is the only path for them. And then when somebody says, you need to pay me money to live here and they don't have any money and you don't, you can't get a job or you may not have a ID because that sometimes is yep. part of it. They take that away yep. and they're in total control of you. And then they say, that's, this is the only way that I'm going to, this is the only way that you can live here is to do this. Right. And then they, then what choice do you have? It's extremely common. I, my ID was taken away from me the first time I was trafficked when I was taken to uh, Las Vegas for 52 hours. I survived this grueling period of time where this man would come up to the room. He would rape me and then he would eat something, fall asleep and go downstairs and go gambling. And this would happen in cycles of every five to six hours for 52 hours. It was for more than two days. It was two and a half days. I was there. Was he like on cocaine or something? <laughs> he did something to keep him up. I do believe that I was uh, traded for cocaine. My boyfriend at the time was his best friend and it, I was the birthday gift. Essentially. I was 18 at the time and I don't have all the details, but I do know that, he, that he did frequently, uh, do drugs. So how is it that you are not, you know, that you did not commit suicide or that, that, that because you have, you, you are a, a darling person. Uh, <laughs> you've got a lot of great personality to you um, to go through all of that. And then to come out the other side, which is why having you on positive talk radio is so important because people need to know, that if you're in the middle of something like that, that there is another side that you can get out of. And, um, and how did you do that? Given where you could have gone, you didn't go, you didn't go into the cycle of drug addiction and, and, and end up, you know, uh, overdosed and all that kind of stuff. Although I don't think I, I, I did you, <laughs> I got it out. Okay. I love the way you set that up. <laughs> so there's there's some stuff in my background. How can there not be? I used to tell people that I didn't commit suicide because I didn't see it as an option. Just shrug my shoulders and walk on. What other choice did I have? I could go through it or I could die. So I just went through it. But that's not the whole truth. The whole truth is that when I was four was the first time I was ever molested. And I started acting out. I started exhibiting bad behaviors. My brother was exhibiting bad behaviors. I don't know what happened to him, but he was my first molester. And I have forgiven him because there's no way a seven-year-old child should have known the things that he knew. He had an education from somewhere and it wasn't his fault. So as a four-year-old acting out, as a seven-year-old acting out, 
my mother took us both into the doctors because back in 1984, there was this brand new drug on the market called Ritalin. Oh, yes. It was the miracle cure. If your child acts out, they probably have attention deficit disorder or hyperactivity. They took us both in. My mom, the, the doctors told my mom that I was fine. I didn't have anything wrong with me. My, my brother had ADHD. Well, she didn't believe them. So she started breaking my brother's medication in half and giving me a half of his Ritalin every day at four. When I was five, she took me off for a couple of days to make sure that I was going through a massive drug withdrawal, took me back into the doctor. So I was pinging off the walls. And of course, at this point, they told her that, yes, she does have ADD. We're going to give her some Ritalin too. Fast forward to when I was 15, I started running away from home because of all the abuse that was continuing within my household. My mother was mentally and emotionally abusive, my father, and very manipulative, obviously. My dad was physically abusive, and my brother had tried to molest me again when I was 12. Things were just not going well for me. I had also been molested by an uncle and some kid at a swimming pool, and just my world was imploding. I started running away at 15, and I didn't take the medications with me. I left them behind. And I was gone for two weeks the first time I left. I stayed with a friend of mine. And I realized something. My head was clear. I could think. I felt emotions that I didn't know that I could feel. I wasn't crying at the drop of a hat anymore. And I started to realize that it was the Ritalin that was causing me to feel and think things that I wouldn't naturally. So I decided I wasn't going to take it anymore. I took myself off, went through massive drug withdrawals, was dragged into a psychiatrist at that point that my parents had done a lot of groundwork to prep. They told this woman <laughs> all these things that I had done that I hadn't actually done and all the bad behaviors that I was exhibiting. Some of them I was. And she put me on Klonopin and Paxil and Prozac and oh these are antidepressants and other mood altering medications and anxiety medications. I didn't take any of them either. I flushed them all down the toilet every day because my mother was counting them. But because of all of that, it set me up to be absolutely terrified of drugs. That so when it. I was 18 and yeah, right. So when I was 18 and I was dating that man who did drugs, he kept it completely away from me. I was still fairly naive, even after everything I'd been through. He kept it away from me. I didn't see it. I didn't experience it. I didn't do drugs. I That wasn't ever an option for me. It just wasn't part of who I was. And when you start experiencing all that abuse at such an early age, for me, it was, I, I believed normal. What wasn't normal were the drugs that were changing what I was thinking and saying and doing. Mm-hmm. So taking drugs wasn't going to fix anything. It wasn't going to help anything because it didn't help anything to begin with. Just recently, I learned that somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 to 95% of the kids that were diagnosed as ADHD in the 1980s were actually kids that had experienced some massive traumas and they were giving them pills as band-aids. And to shut them up. Yep. So yeah, there was really no drugs but the last time I was trafficked, I was 31 years old. I had been around the world a few times at that point. I was engaged to a man that I had known for seven years. 
And the second he got me under his control, he started manipulating me. It took him seven days to start trafficking me once he knew he had me in his grasp. And with that one, I drank. I was there for 152 days in Scotland. I was uh, raped. It's probably the nicest way to put it. Uh, up to five, six, seven days a week, several times a day, sometimes for hours on end. I was waterboarded. I was deprived of food. I was deprived of sleep for up to eight and a half days, as far as I can remember. But things start getting fuzzy after about four or five days. <laughs> it's hard to remember some of that stuff. But when I do, it's like this flood comes back. And the reason that I drank, it wasn't because I was trying to numb the pain because that didn't do anything. I was chasing that blackout drunk. I wanted to get so drunk that I didn't remember what happened. And I never got there because my body told me, you need to stop doing this. You can't feel any kind of control over yourself. And I had this overwhelming need for a sense of control as one of my trauma responses to everything that I had been through. So I used it as a bit of a crutch and it sucked. <laughs> and <laughs> then there came the day that I did try to commit suicide only once. But a very small child saved my life. It was a horrible day. So I was out walking around in Scotland. He had my passport and my ID, my debit card. I had at one point gotten them back from him and tried to get an emergency flight out. And a uh, massive kidney infection landed me in the hospital when the flight took off. So I missed the flight. And I'd spent everything that I had left on that flight. So I did try to get out. Now I had like $11 and change left. What was I going to do with that? So I'm wandering around in this small town in Scotland, knowing that I can't just flag down the police and ask for help because this guy is the police. He's a cop. Oh, Some of the people he's bringing over are cops and lawyers and judges and people that are higher up in the court systems. And just, it just goes deep, but there's also the grocery store clerk, you know, there's some guy that worked in a jewelry store there was this couple that had been married for three years and just looking to spice up their life. These are the people he was bringing over. And I never knew who I could or could not trust. And really, none of them. I couldn't trust any of them. They were all there for the same purpose, man or woman. And I walked down to this old church that day. It was built in the 1600s. And there was this very old graveyard out in the yard. And one of the headstones had the year 1776 on it. And for anybody listening that's not from the U.S., that's kind of a big thing for us. 1776 is when we claimed our independence from England, right? Here right. I am, an American in Scotland. I'm trying to get away from the U.K. And I took that as a bit of a sign. I sat down and I talked to whoever that was under that headstone. And they didn't answer, but it was the best conversation I'd had in months. And nobody noticed me. Nobody asked me if I was okay. Nobody would look at me. Nobody acknowledged me. People were walking by or driving by. And I got up eventually and I sat on the steps of the church. The same thing. Nobody noticed me. Nobody would look at me. People would walk by and look the other way like, oh, she's obviously having a bad day. I don't want to get involved. Because we all do that. And eventually I made my way to the train station. And back then I was a smoker. 
my plan was that I was going to have my one last cigarette there at the train station. And then I was going to get up and walk along the tracks without anybody knowing. When I could, when the train came barreling down the tracks, I was going to commit suicide by train. And while I was sitting there on the platform having my cigarette, a man walked out onto the platform and he asked me for a light. And I gave him my lighter, which nobody could have known what that stupid lighter meant to me. But I gave him my lighter and said, you can keep it. I don't need it anymore. And I wanted him to ask me why. And he wouldn't ask. And I knew I couldn't make the strangers care. I could not make anybody care about me. I was less than human to everyone, including me. But then this little kid, about four, walked out onto the train platform. And he took this man's hand and he looked at me. And you know how when a kid looks at us and we're having a really bad day, we try to cheer ourselves up so that we can not let the kid cry or not let the kid see how sad or upset we are about something. Right. It didn't work. The kid looked right through me. He saw me as a human. He saw me in a way that nobody else had looked at me in months. And I knew that I could not do to this four-year-old child what had been done to me. I could not take his innocence away. I couldn't do what I had set out to do. And so I got up and it took me about 20 seconds to realize I was running back to my prison instead of down the train tracks like I'd originally planned. And I was grateful for a miracle that I hadn't yet received because I knew that if I was going to be kept alive in that moment, in that way, that my life had to mean something to somebody, even if it wasn't me yet. It had to mean something. And I knew that I wasn't going to die some nameless, faceless thing, a pile of hamburger on the side of the train tracks. I was going to be somebody to somebody. And I didn't know how long that was going to take. And I didn't know if really if I should just give up, but I wasn't willing to give up. Yeah, And it took a long time to really... It, well, it took a while to be able to get out of there, but it took a really long time to figure out that I was somebody to me after that. You know, I'd had 40 years of abuse. I was 31 years old when I was in Scotland. It didn't end just because I left. The most dangerous part of any of this for anybody who's ever experienced trafficking or domestic violence is when you leave because you are hunted like an animal. You are that person's property. And if they can't have you, nobody can. That's a narcissistic approach to what the part of part of their makeup. Right. Um, and, and by the way, we're talking with Amanda Blackwood. And I got to tell you, you are a wonderful writer. You're a, you're a wonderful storyteller. <laughs> Thank um, you. Because I was just mesmerized with with the, with the story and how you told it. I was on that railroad track with you when the, that was going through when you were going through the story and that's a, that's how talented a writer you are thank and you. thank god that you're still with us because you've got so much talent and so much ability to do it and you know the the interesting thing amanda is that at some level we all go through that 
not at the level that you did because what you do when you went through you can talk about it like you and i are having a cup of coffee and you're talking about the fact that you were getting raped multiple times a day <laughs> i got mine over here it even says kevin on it so there <laughs> but you were abused uh, several times a day and now you've 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 come out the other side, and that's that is the most important thing about your story. Is now you've written thirteen novels or thirteen books, some are um, um, uh, uh, biographical, and and some are kind of. And there's a cookbook, and you've done you've done so much. And and oh, by the way, if you're interested to know, she is married. Um, she's got a husband, and her life is nothing like she would have assumed it would be. You know. I, I got to tell you, I was um, writing a bit of a of, a, of my own uh, biography, <clears throat> and um, I think that everybody has got a moment like this when it was like uh, I went to high school. It was a unique. It was a uh, unique school, and so I didn't do very well because, but nobody cared. My parents weren't involved. They didn't really. Give. So I played ball. And in those days, you could play ball without having them check your grades. Mm. And, stuff. and so um, I failed at high school. And then the first four jobs that I had, I failed at. Then I decided to become a boxer and ended up in the hospital. And because uh, I got I got beat up. And uh, um, there was a point in time when the most insignificant thing could happen. When that four-year-old boy came up to you and looked you through and through, other people may consider that an insignificant thing, but it was a big deal. Yeah, say it's it like I, I went and I, I got hired in a restaurant as the graveyard dishwasher. And, and that going to work in that environment changed the person who I was and I became very, very successful in doing all the way through from being a graveyard dishwasher to being the, the uh, national sales manager for a major poultry company. Wow. Um, and, but it's amazing. And if you treat them right and keep moving through them, you can get through them, but it takes an example like what you've done and your life to help people that are going through horrific times to get that done. I, I hope that you're as proud of you as I am of you. <laughs> I am now. It took a long time to get here. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But you're by no means, are you anywhere near done by the way? Oh no. Oh heck no. Now there's still a lot more that I need to get done in my life. And isn't that a, a wonderful freeing experience when you can recognize that and you've and you've had uh, some success you feel good about yourself you feel good about having your going into the airport and going to the bookstore and seeing a book on the shelf with your name on it that's got to feel good <laughs> oh you know i didn't think it would ever happen it did didn't this it, it did <laughs> this was this was on my bucket list so I, you and i were talking about before we started this episode, but one of the things that I didn't mention was that the reason it was on my bucket list was because I was ready to check out. Yeah. yeah, yes, I did survive all of Scotland. I got out of there, but less than 2% of all victims survive. Yeah. And that number is so small. And of those who do actually get out with their lives, 
the survival rate from that dim diminishes also. You feel like this completely broken person, like you're less than human and it doesn't exactly go away. You think that you're broken and nobody can ever fix you and you can't fix you and nothing is ever going to change. And that's where I was. I was stuck for a long time. So I wrote down a bucket list of all the things that I wanted to accomplish before I checked out. And that was the last item on that list. I had done all of the others. And when I wrote that, that first book, I, you know, I wasn't even worried about publishing it right away. I had just written the book. Wow. That's, that's an accomplishment. I found a sense of purpose in that. Mm -hmm. And if we don't have any kind of sense of purpose, we flounder. Mm -hmm. And when I had discovered this sense of purpose, I realized I could do that again. I wonder if I could duplicate that. What else should I write? Oh, gosh, that was a good book. I think I can write three more in a series like that. I should try. My entire life changed because I found a purpose. It wasn't my purpose, but it was a purpose. Mm -hmm. You don't have to discover what you're meant to do for the rest of your life to find a purpose. And it changed everything. My entire life. Life changed to the point where eventually this was, I was living out in California. I packed up and moved to Colorado because I wanted mountains instead of water. I was tired of the ocean, man. I don't swim in that salt water anyway. It's like brine. It's gross, <laughs> especially in LA, but the mountains are clean and clear and it's covered in snow right now. And it's just gorgeous. Mm -hmm. I needed somewhere. I felt like I could grow and California. Wasn't that place. It's not that place for a lot of people, honestly. Definitely not that place for me. So I moved out to Colorado. And in 2019 is when I discovered that the man that trafficked me in Scotland made me famous on a pornography website. Using all these photos and videos. And he linked it all to my own social media pages so that people could find me. And when I was living in L.A. in the early 2000s, I had been on Alias. And Will and Grace, I modeled for Harley Davidson. I was on Extreme Makeover. I had done all these really super cool things. But that day in the grocery store, a man asked for me for my autograph. It wasn't for any of those things. It was because I was on a pornography website and I was famous. And there's nothing that you could do about it. I didn't think so. The only thing I could really do was crumble at the time. But I reached out to an anti-trafficking organization. They paired me up with uh, pro bono legal services, specifically helping survivors of trafficking. I had a whole law firm in New York City with five names on the board that I can't even pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> and they were going after these pornography websites and telling them, you need to pull this stuff down. This is non-consensual. And he was making money off of me. But every time one went down, two more went up. It's because they get shared from person to person and yep. and then they, they take the same material and then yeah. they they utilize it because uh, not everybody looks at the same stuff. So they can do whatever they want to with it, really. Right. Exactly. And once it's out there, once it exists, it exists forever. So fair warning to all of the young ladies and young men out there taking these nude photos for your significant other. You better not ever break up with them. <laughs> <'Cause>... <laughs> Guess well, what? They're going to share this stuff. 
And that that's the thing is that, that uh, these selfies and what the, these kids do, they, they think it's, you know, I'm in love. I, I want to show him that I, how much I love him. But, but then they, when the inevitable breakup happens and most of those do break up, um, right. then it's like, Hey, look what she, look what I <clears throat> took yeah. of her or him. Yeah. And what a lot of people don't realize there is that if these are school aged children under the age of 18, every single person that you send it to, you are committing a felony. It doesn't matter how old you are. If you are another 16-year-old kid sending pictures of your 16-year-old girlfriend with anything kind of lewd about it, you are committing a felony. Every single child who looks at that text message is also committing a felony. Every one of those kids that forwards it on to anybody else, every single person that they forward it to, that is another felony that they're racking up. So it grows exponentially. But if nobody says anything, nothing's going to happen. See, and that's, to me, that's one of those things in this day and age. Now, I guess <laughs> I was I was doing a show the other day and, I, you know, we we're talking about abbreviations for text and, and stuff. And I don't even know what BFF means, <laughs> um, you know. And so as the parents go, they might not know the the code that's being exchanged or they may have given their their child a smartphone phone and never looks at the content of that smartphone and they could be 15 16 um that's way too much freedom for someone of that age i i, I would think so uh do you have any ideas, any recommendations on how parents should handle that kind of thing? Boy, do I. I have page after page after page <laughs> of these things. So I actually have a special file folder on my phone that is called Predators. And it's all the apps that predators are known to use right now to be able to lure in others uh, for purposes of um, exploitation, trafficking, molestation, anything. There's a lot. So the best advice that I have is that you need to stay up on this stuff like I do. If I can keep up with it, I don't even have a teenager running around the house. I'm a grandmother. <laughs> if you got kids running around your house, you need to do a better job of keeping up with it than I do. Look it up online. All the information is out there. Do the work. And another big thing, spend quality time with your kids. We're all addicted to these things these days. Mine's even plugged in because I killed the battery. You know, <laughs> we got to put them down and we got to spend time with our families. My birthday was this past Monday. My husband was, thank you. My husband was so wonderful. He went out and got this detective mystery game for me that you can play as a one player where you're given all of this evidence and stuff and you got to go through and solve the crime. And oh, that sounds like fun. Oh, it's a blast, but you can do this with your kids yeah. and you don't have to obsess over it and spend the next 20 hours doing it nonstop. Set aside a half hour each night to sit down at a table and do this with them. Have one-on-one -on -one conversations, work with the, with some kind of a problem with them. And you're going to start breaking down these walls where these kids aren't communicating with you because they're too busy texting with their friends. They think that they can't talk to you, but they can talk to little Susie Jew over here. Exactly. 
exactly. I was at a, um, a, uh, and it was a natural market, in fact, and they had tables outside and there was a mom and two kids. Kids were probably between, oh, I don't know, 10 and 14, somewhere in there. And uh, they each had an ice cream and they each had their phone out and it was like, scroll, 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 eat, scroll, scroll, scroll. Never looked up. Yeah. Never said hello to each other. Never talked about, hey, how was school today? Or whatever, just to just to break down those barriers, and we there's way too much of that. We're doing yeah. it so much that we're not paying attention to the kids and what and those things are going to repeat. What happened to you is going to repeat itself because nobody paid attention to you, and no people are not paying attention to the kids today. And then uh, it's you know don't get me started. Don't get me started because it can be. We have so we we have the ability to change all of that, and we don't. Yep, the power is in our hands, and I'm not talking about devices. No, the the power is to put the damn thing down and talk to somebody. Yep, we have a kind of an unspoken rule between my husband and I that when we go out to eat, these phones don't come out at the table. We sit down and we have conversations like people used to. I have this great love of all things 1940s. In fact, I have a 19 late 1930s radio over behind me. I've got a 1940s uh 1947 dress and a 1949 coat on a mannequin right behind me. This is cool. this is kind of my thing. My entire office is filled with 1940s antiques. But with that, I watch a lot of those old 1940s films. And I love the family values that they have in these movies where they sit around the dinner table all together and they have actual conversations. This is not something that everybody experiences. This is a foreign concept these days to a lot of kids. We need to bring back the idea of spending time together as a family, not dad's off doing that job or mom's off at yoga class. Have a meal together. It doesn't have to be dinner. If it can't be dinner, then Make it breakfast, make it lunch, make it a midnight freaking snack if you have to. Everybody enjoys ice cream at midnight. Just spend some quality time together. That, and that starts with mom and dad. Yeah. Uh, the kids aren't going to do it because they're, they're kids. Uh, but if you want your family to be together, you need to plan a meal, cook the meal. And by the way, uh, Amanda's got a wonderful cookbook that you should go get the cookbook and so you can cook the meal and then everybody sit down and enjoy the meal with each other. Um, and she even has coffee drinks in there. So that's really cool. Mm. Yes. My pumpkin spice latte is a thing of legend after what I did to my poor husband just last week. <laughs> I filled the cup up so much. And then I put the homemade whipped cream on the top of it to where when it started melting into the drink, the foam started like spilling over the edges and he was <laughs> slurping it off the side of the cup. It was great. I have a photo. I have several photos. <laughs> well, I all I can tell you is that, you know, uh, you have been you've been trafficked. You've been um, on, in Hollywood. You've a writer. You're a podcaster. Tell us a little bit about your podcast, please. I have four of them. My main podcast is called uh, Survivors Stories of Hope Live On. And I interview people who have also overcome incredible odds and have written their own stories about how they got through it and how they moved on. And this is uh, their way of offering hope to the world. In fact, all of the books that are stacked up on my radio back here 
are just a small collection of the books that I have been sent from the guests. These are the books that have been on my my program. I love having these people on. If I didn't have this podcast, I wouldn't have the ability to be able to talk to these people about this stuff. And it's really amazing. Um, I also have Growth from Darkness, a co-host and not uh, from Australia. I love love that. That's that's also the name of my website, Growth from Darkness, because that's what we're doing. We are growing from this dark place where we've been. Yes. And a seed can't grow unless it has darkness. So true. So true, but it also needs light and it needs uh, water and it needs tender love and care. Right. And we, it needs we, its me time. Yeah. And we can do all that. Um, and you, you know, I, I just love the fact that you are doing all of these things and all of them are designed in whether it's the book or the podcast, somebody's going to listen to a episode that you're doing now or five years from now it's not your job to determine who or how or when but when they need it it'll be there for them and that's why it's so important that you're doing and for to be fair what i'm doing what i'm doing is to is to so that we can get the word out there and i can provide a forum for people like you to come on here and to and to do some extraordinary things you are really really fun to talk to and you're really talented I can't remember the last time I've laughed this much talking about trafficking. <laughs> well, it, it it's a it happened. It's a deal. But you know what? The, the beautiful thing is, is that you've overcome it, and and you're no longer in that place, and you're not never going to be in that place again. And anybody that you know that you can reach is not going to be in that place because the signs are evident. We just tend to ignore them. And you can do it, and everybody everybody can do it. And and the the going from um, the railroad tracks to be and almost becoming hamburger to being the author of thirteen books, four podcasts, a grandmother, a wonderful wife, and um, a uh, what in a wonder what part of Colorado? <laughs> I painted that. Oh, <laughs> and, and an artist too. That's right. When do you have time for all this stuff? I make time for it. Yeah. And you know, that's important too, because another really strong uh, trauma reaction a lot of people has is a need for control. And you can't control the bus from the back seat. That's life. So find the things that you can control and use them to your advantage as much as possible. Writing, painting, drawing, cooking, all of these things help you to channel your need for control into something that's going to be productive and helpful. Even if nobody else ever sees it or enjoys it or looks at it or tastes it, it doesn't matter. Nope. Create. You did it. You created it. Yeah. You know, I was a bus driver for 12 years, and I should use that as a, a bus driver sticker. You can't drive the bus from the back seat. That would, that would be a really good uh, um, um, bumper sticker. I'm actually going to have that printed on T-shirts. <laughs> good. Good for you. There's another one I'm going to have printed on T-shirts. It is... Uh, stop reaching for the band-aids, start looking for the shovel. Okay, you're going to explain that one to me. So the band-aids are what we're doing to try and self-soothe ourselves rather than dealing with the trauma that we've had in our lives. Oh. But with your shovel, you can get to the root of the problem. That's why you're an author, by gum. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, 
you are you are just simply amazing we we have been talking with amanda uh, blackwood and she is nothing if you want to go to her website go to growthfromdarkness.com and by the way she also does public speaking so if you're somebody that that uh, hires public speakers this would be a great public speaker to you for you to hire <laughs> so if they want to contact you for your public speaking how do they get that done uh, it's really easy to find me through that website, growthfromdarkness.com. There's a contact form. There's also a form to be able to set up a Google Meet time with me and just have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Or they can go where I am most frequently found, and that's Facebook. If I wasn't on Facebook as much as I am, I would probably write more than two books a year. <laughs> Goodness gracious. <laughs> I, I, I'm not a Facebook. I, I got to get on a Facebook more, but it's like, okay. It's, I, I don't know. Anyway, but I, I have to run. I've got another podcast or a radio show to do, but I wanted to give you the opportunity. I'm going to step aside. I'd like you to tell our audience anything that's on your heart to tell them right now. If you're going through hard stuff like this, domestic violence, human trafficking, whatever it is, not knowing what resources are available to you is the same thing as not, not having those resources. Thankfully, we live in the age of the internet. And this is where I am going to tell you to pick up your phones because you can use your web browser to go and find the resources that are available. There are organizations and people everywhere. The whole reason that they have found to keep going through their lives is to be able to help you with yours. Find those people. And I know asking for help is a really difficult thing to do. But that's because it's a strength, not a weakness. Go and ask for the help that you need. And it's going to be okay. And if you don't know how to ask for the help that you need, reach out to me. I will help you to do this. Tell me what your needs are. I can hopefully pair you up with the right people. And remember, we all grew up hearing what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But that's a lie. That was said originally in the 1800s by a guy who later died in an insane asylum. The truth is not that the, the past is what made you strong. It's not the abusers. It's not the traumas that made you strong. It was your ability to keep going through it all. You had just had to dig a little deeper with that shovel to find the strength that was already inside you to begin with. Again, we've been talking with Amanda blackwood thank you so much for being here it's it's you you're doing good in the world and and um it does my heart good so uh, if you'll wait right there i'll be right back hey thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end please give us a like and subscribe to this channel this has been a production of positivetalkradio.net please visit our website oddly named positivetalkradio.net for more details about us and our mission which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all i'm kevin mcdonald and i'm proud of these shows and i truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family so on behalf of our entire team remember be kind to one another because each other's all we got.